again. Welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards what? Bridging that divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Really, really appreciate the love and the support that you all have been giving. Please make sure that you continue to do so. Give that love, that support, and that encouragement. What's the best way to provide all those? Well, it's by rating these episodes. Rate them highly. Give it that thumbs up. Write me an email. Uh, let me know how I'm doing, uh, and I will read your email. Uh, cptlhunter at gmail.com. Thank you uh, to all those who are uh, giving me uh, information, sending me videos and, and uh, reports and uh, news articles. Really, really appreciate it. Please keep it up. Try to stay informed and everything like that. Um, and so uh, rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Much love and much appreciation for all of you who have been doing it. Please keep up the great work. Another way that you can help to support the podcast is, of course, through PayPal Cash App and Venmo. Becoming a financial supporter of the show, you know, a couple dollars an episode would really, really help out and go a long way. $50 a year or something along those lines would really, really be appreciated. Um, and so my book, Police Reform, is finally, finally in uh, Amazon. Uh, I'm working on the ebook uh, right now, so that's it's not available through ebook. Uh, so police reform, a retired police captain's perspective on the evolution of law enforcement in, in America and how to improve the criminal justice system. I really got to shorten that subtitle uh, is uh, available on LULU.com or you can go over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or it should be wherever uh, books uh, are sold. So make sure that you pick up your copy today. Really, really appreciate everyone who has supported the podcast and the book project thus far. Um, so for today, let's jump right in the episode. I wanted to do a show or actually what happened was I re- came across an article by Miss Emily Eakins. Uh, she is, uh, um, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. She wrote an article, uh, that I thought was really, really great. The name of the article is of policing in America, understanding public attitudes towards the police. Um, so I reached out and she was kind enough to come on the show, obviously. Uh, Ms. Emily Eakins is a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute. Her research focuses on public opinion, American politics, political psychology, and social movements. She leads the Cato Institute Project on Public Opinion, in which she designed to conduct national public opinion surveys and experiments. She is the author of several in-depth survey reports, including the, the, the State of Free Speech and Tolerance in America, Attitudes About being uh, Attitudes About Free Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Liberty, and Tolerance of Political Expression. That's one article. Uh, Wall Street versus the Regulators. I got to read this one. Uh, Public Attitudes on Banks, Financial Regulation, Consumer Finance, and the Federal Reserve. And uh, Policing in America, Understanding the the Public Attitudes Towards the Police. Eakin's other publications include The Five Types of Trump Voters and Religious Trump Voters, How Faith Moderates Attitudes About Immigration, Race, and Identity. Uh, really, really uh, looking forward to this conversation. This We recorded this quite some time ago, but I'm definitely going to reach back out to her in light of uh, what happened at the Capitol just and what's going on with immigration and race and, and all this type of stuff. So she's really, really uh, knowledgeable about these types of things. Uh, so listen, it's, it's going to be it's a great interview that we had. So sit back, relax, and let's just get into it. Let's talk about uh, the public's attitude towards uh, the police with Miss Emily Eakin. Thank you once again 
Emily Ekins. Am I saying your name right for coming on? Um, Ekins, but Ekins, it's fine. Ekins. Okay. I always dread saying people's name wrong, and I continue I to know. do it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> uh, PhD, which I didn't realize. You were very humble about that. You have a PhD, and uh, what's your PhD in? Uh, political science. Political science. Okay. I started reading your uh, your dissertation. Uh, so. Oh wow. <laughs> Let's let's talk about you and uh, what you have been up to. Can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, if you will? I'm sure. So I'm the director of polling at the Cato Institute, which is a think tank in Washington D.C. And part of what I do is conduct national public opinion polls on a wide variety of issues, um, particularly public policy issues like police reform, immigration foreign policy. And then sometimes we delve into things that are not really issue-based, but of kind of cultural relevance. So political free, you know, free thought and political discourse. And so um, we, we pull on a wide variety of topics and then we release all the results to the public. Um, uh, yeah. So that's what I do at the Cato Institute. <laughs> now, sometimes uh, think tanks re lean right to, or to the left. Which one does the Cato Institute? Or are they just down the middle or what? So the Cato Institute is nonpartisan and it's libertarian leaning. Um, so it really doesn't have a home with either of the two political parties. So a lot of think tanks, you're actually right, do kind of lean with one party or the other. Um, but Cato tends to agree with one of the political parties on some issues and it agrees with the other political party on the other issues. So in some ways people might think it's moderate, but it's just because we just have a set of issues that Kind of work with either party depending on what the issue is yeah i think that most of us most americans are really kind of in the middle you know i tend to be very dismissive of someone who agrees with every single thing that the republicans say or every single thing that the democrats say that's it's just nonsensical I mean, there are some things i agree with and some things i don't agree with on both sides yeah. so but yeah. that's but that's my opinion so another thing that i'm doing is i'm finishing up a book and I quoted you uh, in the book, part of your uh, policing in America, understanding public attitudes towards towards uh, the police, not results from a national survey. Uh, I read over that. Uh, it's a big, long 93 page PDF that I read over. Um, so I quoted you a little bit. And when I talk about the Cato Institute, I'm talking about you and your work. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to have you on the podcast. Unfortunately, I reached out and you were so kind enough to come on uh, and talk about that. Um, so. Um, so you wrote this probably back in 2016, if you remember. Um, it's yes. obviously becoming very relevant today with all that's going on. So before we dive into that, can you tell us your thoughts uh, as what you think is going on with police, law enforcement, reform, and everything today? Wow. Well, it's a very contentious issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so my, the, the perspective I bring is kind of what people think as opposed to like what ought to be the case. Um, and so in 2016, um, we saw that people were concerned about um, police issues and that there was widespread agreement about what policing ought to be about. But there was polarization and, and, a, and a significant racial divide in evaluations about what policing currently is. This is back in 2016. Um, 
where white Americans were more likely to see the police as being held accountable, only using um, excessive force, or only using the force necessary for a given situation, um, and more the idea that like, yeah, there's some bad apples out there, but they're the minority, like they're not significant in number. Um, and then black and Hispanic um, Americans tended to view the police as not being held accountable when things go wrong and using more force for a situation that is necessary and so forth. What we've seen since 2016, though, is a shift where everyone's kind of starting to see the police in a more negative light. Now, people still like the police. Most people have a favorable view, especially of their own local police department. But they keep seeing news stories about police officers that have acted in a way that they feel was excessive for the situation. And so they're becoming more critical of the police. And now things have flipped where most people think that this is more of a systemic issue in policing across the country as opposed to just a few police officers here or there that get out of line. Why do you think that people see it has flipped? Why do you think that? I think that um, major um, events that have transpired over the past couple of years um, that have received a lot of news attention, um, I think that people feel like there is a racial component um, to, to what they're seeing in policing, the excesses that they see in policing. They feel like there's a racial component and people are upset about that. Um, and so I just think it's like the sheer number of, of events that have happened where there is a you know, a shooting, what, what are they called, officer involved shooting, and that people feel like it was unnecessary given that the set of um, circumstances. And so now people are starting to think this happens way too often. This isn't just about a couple of bad apples here or there, but more of a systemic problem where perhaps police are not being trained to use the appropriate amount of force needed. And then some people even go further than that and think, you know, maybe there's actually a racial bias in policing, which really concerns them. Um, so I think that's what's really driven the shift that we've seen in public attitudes. Mm. So I, I did ask uh, what your opinion is. What, 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 I mean, I know what you do as far as policy work, but what's, do, you, do you think that there is something that's going on, particularly as far as the shift, as far as the change, something that's went on in 2016 in comparison to today in 2020? So... Um, I think that there has not been a, a change in like the number of events. I think that these things have been going on for a long time, but now the news is covering it and we have body camera footage and that we have video evidence of these events transpiring and so regular people can see it. You know, before, before, we, before everyone had a camera and a video, you know, a recorder on their phone, it was kind of like your, you know, your word versus his word or her word. And now we have the video and you can watch it and you can decide for yourself. Um, so if you actually look at the number of police officer involved shootings, I, I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, they actually have gone down yeah. since 2015, but now we have more and more coverage of it. And so people are becoming aware. And I think a lot of people say, hey, look, we've been saying this for years. <laughs> now you're just believing it. Um, so I think that that is what has changed is the news coverage of what has already been happening has increased and that regular people having iPhones and, and other kinds of phones that can record events on the scene and post it to YouTube in minutes um, has, has enabled more people in society to believe that these things are happening in a more widespread way. 
You talked about uh, some of the racial um, uh, divides, racial and political divides. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? Why, why are some people more likely to see and or agree with whether police are doing their job correctly or those that have been saying, hey, we've been telling you this for years? Um, well, so what we found in our survey was that um, African-American and Latino respondents were more likely to have had negative interactions with police officers or that their friends or family had had a negative interaction with a police officer. Um, so for instance, um, Black Americans were significantly more likely to say a police officer you know, use profanity with them. I think that's a kind of an interesting metric there, right? Because you know, people can say, well, was he rude or not? Or was she rude or not? Well, how do we define rudeness, right? But if we just ask about like profanity, and that's a little bit more concrete. Uh, so they were more likely to say that the police officer had used profanity. Um, they were more likely to say that they or someone they knew had been physically um, mistreated by the police. Um, and I think that those differences in either personal experiences or vicarious experiences through other people within your social network really serve to shape um, perceptions of the police. But this is a long-standing issue for many people in the Black community where back in 1973, the, uh, the perceptions of how the police behaved look very similar to what they do today. And so I think that you have kind of a generational issue where people are, you know, people are, are sharing stories of things that have happened to them over time. And like, there hasn't been much change, it sounds like, in policing. Like the fact that public attitudes haven't changed for this long of a period of time suggests that things haven't changed. <laughs> um, and so there was that race, the racial gap that I described in 1973 was almost identical when we pulled it in, 19, in 2016. But in the past, you know, three to four years, that's actually where there's, been a narrowing of that gap. So you know, you've gone you know, several decades with very little change, and now you have the change. And I think what's driven that change is people being able to see what's happening um, for their, with their own eyes on a YouTube video or on Facebook or Twitter. They're able to see what's happening, and that's kind of bringing people's perceptions more in line with each other. Mm. That's, that's really very interesting. That's really very interesting. Do you get the the feeling that e even with all this that you you noted that um, African Americans and, and Latinos still have a favorable view of the police, despite uh, was was it the same in nineteen in the nineteen seventies? Their view of the police. Um, I have to. There was only there's one question in particular that I'm thinking about, um, and that was similar. But yes, like over time majorities have had favorable views, views of the police because like anyone else, they want law and order in the community. They want to feel safe and they recognize that the police help offer that. Um, it's just that there are some, there are some problems that people want to see addressed and they feel like that they're not being addressed and the reforms that people want to see aren't happening. And I think that's where that gap is. But like I, I wrote about, there's really no major group in America that's quote anti-cop. You know, there's you know some activists out there that are, <laughs> of, of course, but they're by no means representative of any you know large group in America. Um, most people want to like the police. 
Um, to the extent that there are negative attitudes, it's because people feel like the police are failing to live up to what they want them to do, um, which is to be just and impartial arbiters of the law to protect them and to treat everyone equally under the law. That, everyone agrees that's what people want. Um, they just feel like it's not happening um, as consistently as they think it should. Uh, you touched on this a little bit, but what would pe people say is the reason that it is not happening within the the brown communities? Um, sorry, could you ask that question again? I, I don't really understand what you're asking. Sure. So I, I think we touched on it a little bit, but but uh, so black and brown people are, are feel as if they're being sworn at, used having profanity used against them. What is the reason that this is going on in their communities? in comparison to when white people interact with the police? What's the difference? Oh, so what do they think is the reason? What do they or, think is the reason, yes, yes. I don't think people um, know what the reason is. And so they feel like it must be, um, like they don't feel like there's a like legitimate reason for it. And so thus they assume that it's racial bias um, against people of color. And when people say, well, this was a police officer, um, the police officer who engaged in this behavior, you know, was Hispanic or black. And, you know, well, how, how, what, what explains that? And people will say, well, like the system in general has become very biased towards um, black Americans and Latino Americans. So even people who themselves aren't white will, will like act accordingly. Um, now that's what I think a lot of people think. Um, in terms of why it's actually happening, it's it's so complicated, right? That's why you would need to have like many, many ex experts <laughs> go through all of that. Mm. You talked about uh, people who feel a certain way. I mean, as far as that, is it, can, can we quantify it more than just their feeling? They feel as if they're being sworn at, they feel as if, uh, can, can we identify that some way and determine is it actually happening or is this just something that people assume is happening, right? I grew up in a black community and, and people will just assume that, okay, the police treat us rough. So is there a way to compare that to, you know, wh whether white people are being sworn at? Uh, mm -hmm. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Making sure right. it's not anecdotal and just, just perpetuating a myth. Can we, can we quantify this and make sure it's happening? Right. Well, so there are ex there are economists who study this question, um, and I think that they would be the best ones to interview because they actually take lots of data into account. Um, because you can't just look at two variables; you have to look at lots of things together and kind of get you know what's the true relationship here. You know what's really causing this. Um, I think most people would agree there's no good reason to be using profanity with people. Like you're a professional agent of the of the state. Yeah. Um, but that could, that's probably correlated with a whole other set of issues, right? But one thing we did find in our survey um, was that we found that as black Americans reported having higher levels of income, they were more likely to say that they were stopped by a police officer. And you've heard this anecdotally from, you know, really wealthy um, black businessmen and politicians like Tim Scott says he gets pulled over like seven times a year and, um, George Smith, I believe is his name, is a billionaire financier that lives in Texas. Um, and he, he has a house kind of out in the suburbs and drives to the airport a lot. And like, as he drives to the airport, gets pulled over a lot. Um, so there, there, you know, there's pieces of evidence like that. Um, but when it comes to, you know, what does the data say about all of these different interactions? It, there's just so much 
contention and controversy because one economist will go through and say, well, when you take into account all the different variables, um, like if you take into account the context, then there are not significant differences in use of force um, that are severe, but there are difference, you know, significant differences in the use of force at lesser levels of force. And then other people come in and say, oh, actually, no, that data analysis he did was wrong. And when you take into account this other thing, then there are differences. So it's a very complicated question and one that like I can't answer for you. Um, but when it comes to what people think, I think that that matters a lot for how we go forward because um, police need people to cooperate and to trust and have confidence in them in order to do their jobs effectively. When there is a homicide or a, you know, a major crime, they need people to be able to tell them what happened and to cooperate with them. But when people are afraid of them, feel like they can't trust them, that makes the, you know, the job of police officers much more difficult. Um, and so kind of even aside of like, this is anecdotal, this is really statistically significant, what matters is that this is what many people believe. Yes. And so the way forward is to try to figure out how to improve, um, you know, we should take every opportunity to improve policing, right? And then also try to, um, you know, improve community relations um, and how you do that. I, I absolutely agree with you. And when I, when I talk to people, I mean, the tagline of my podcast is bridging the divide between the police and the community. And so people have, have pushed back and I see a lot of different other pundits on TV push back and say, well, here are the real numbers, right? Black people aren't being killed in mass, as they say. And, and, they're, and they're right about that. I'm not going to dispute the numbers. But the problem is, is that this is the perception that people have. That's the perception. Right. So if you if, as you mentioned, they go into certain communities, a crime is committed. If everyone thinks that this is the perception or they have this perception of this and they refuse to cooperate, then then we're going to continue to to have problems and issues of, of noncompliance and not cooperation. Right. And those same people t tell their kids, well, listen, don't ever talk to the police. Don't trust the police. And then you have another generation of, of people growing up saying that this is what the police do, whether they evidence is anecdotal real or not and so that uh, i absolutely agree with you that this is that this is the problem yeah you know anecdotally um it just people can grow up in very different worlds and and hear very different stories about the police and i remember i was dating this guy in in high school and he had he was um going to a different high school like on the other side of town um and one day we walked by the police and he just starts saying they're pigs they're pigs <laughs> I was very confused. I, I thought, where on earth is this coming from? He was enraged. He was so angry and just full of just animosity. Um, and I asked him, where on earth was this coming from? Like, I had never known anyone to have so much anger towards the police. Well, you know, just he grew up in a very different community um, and with different um, experiences and different historical experiences, different narratives, like what you were saying, like what what people say about the police. So he learned very young to not trust the police. Whereas where I grew up, that was not the, that was not the story I was told. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of a wake up call for me to realize that there really are big differences in how people view the police. And I think many people don't appreciate how wide those differences are and how important it is to address those for, you know, police and communities to be safer. Absolutely. Uh, so I mentioned that I'm finishing up a book. It's at the editors right now. And then I thought I could actually write, but she's actually killing, killing my, my work there. It's 
quite embarrassing, quite honestly. But anyway, <laughs> it's what they do. <laughs> it's what they do. Um, and so, so uh, she was really very interested in seeing this and reading this, you know, because of where everything, the state of everything that's going on, it's about police reform and all this. And so, you know, I'm telling these different stories and she's like, wow, I never heard of that. Wow, I never heard of this. Uh, one, one thing caught me in particular. She said, wow, why, why would police ask people to get out of the car on a motor vehicle stop? <laughs> it's just like, wow, <laughs> how, do you, how, do, how do you not know this? But, but she didn't, I mean, she didn't. She grew up in, uh, you know, in, in a different place. And I talked, I ended up talking to another story is I ended up talking about homeless persons who live in your cars. And some people actually have jobs, but they don't make enough or they're, they're saving up for, you know, a high class apartment. So they're living in their job. So they don't, un she didn't understand why police would harass people in those particular places. And it's not necessarily the police that are doing it. Well, it's, it's them that's doing it, but they're doing it at the behest of the city government. And so right. she said she, she was living in her car because she, d she does this rock climbing where they go from one mountain to another mountain and they just live in their cars. It's just something that they all do. You know, uh -huh. I was kind of, I was kind of shocked at that, but, but she couldn't understand you know, why the police would bother people who would sleep in their cars or whatever. So uh, just, and, and I appreciate her asking these questions because it, it helps me to obviously refine and define my arguments a little bit better to meet an audience who has never heard of these types of problems that are going on that people have been complaining about, you know? Right. Um, I, we talk, you talked about people swearing and I, that was always one thing that was always very, very big to me. Uh, really? when people, when people would come into, uh, into the, what we would call the front desk, into the front desk, the, the lobby area and, and complain that this officer swore at them. And, you know, they would often say, listen, I won't have a problem with that. The officer towed my car or arrested me or arrested my child, but did he have to swear at me when he did it? You know, I've got these little kids with me and all that. So that was always, always something that was, that was really, really huge uh, with me. And I agree with you that they're, they're agents of the state. They should not be doing that, you know? Uh, so it's unfortunate that it happens. I think that it can serve to, to escalate situations rather than de-escalate. And especially in a situation where there's such tense relations between um, communities and police, like the very like basic level is to show the utmost respect and humility for members of the community who are paying the bills. Um, and just, you know, don't use ad hominem attacks and profanity. Um, and I think that that really, you know, that's just one small step. Um, but I do think it's an interesting way of measuring the different experiences that people have with the police. Because I think before iPhones and, and people recording their interactions with the police that the public could see, you know, someone would say, a police officer was rude to me. And, you know, someone else listening to that would say, well, how, how were they rude to you? Like, were you just... Were you looking to be offended or were they actually offensive, right? And so I think that with the proliferation of technology that allows people to share their experiences, people are starting to see that, yeah, some people are having very different experiences and that seems unfair. Um, and that leads people to ask, well, why is this happening? And racial bias is, you know, it seems like a major reason to many people because they think, why else would that be? Um, but I also think it's a good way to measure the different experiences that people have so that more people can see what those differences are. Yeah, yeah. You talked about um, some of the changes that departments or, or the people want. What's been so, in your opinion, what has been so slow about that? 
some of the changes. Body cameras, although there are, there are a lot more body cameras out there today. Uh, one of the biggest things that I noticed in your uh, um, article uh, was that 79% support law enforcement agencies conducting investigations, right? An outside agency doing the, doing the internal affairs. What do you think is slowing down those types of changes? So many people feel like police unions have something to do with that, um, that they kind of ossify um, the process that make it difficult for um, police departments to be more flexible in adapting to different methods of holding um, officers accountable. Um, so some people argue that, um, like you said, like having outside agencies um, to investigate accusations of misconduct um, is one way to help hold police officers accountable. I mean, ultimately about why people feel this way, I think a lot of it has to do with the perceptions that police officers use more force than is necessary in many situations and that when that happens, they, there doesn't seem to be um, any sort of consequence to that behavior. And I think that that upsets people. And so it seems like there are two things that need to happen to repair, you know, to repair um, perceptions is one, to try to find ways to reduce the amount of force that is necessary. Um, it's kind of almost like when you think about like with kids, like, you know, don't use any more force than is necessary to deal with the situation, right? Um, and I think that a lot of people feel like just too much is used too quickly. Um, and perhaps police officers themselves would contest that and say that no, they use the appropriate amount given the situation, given how dangerous the, the context was. Um, but I think a lot of people are starting to look at other countries and see that a lot of officers in other places don't even carry a gun, which I think is very surprising, right? Um, but they think, well, how come other countries are able to, you know, have police without even having guns? Um, and so if there were ways to try to reduce that, especially in situations like, was it really necessary to handcuff this person? Like, was it absolutely necessary? If the answer is no, well, it's like, well, then let's not do that, especially when it's going to be filmed and people are going to think that maybe they were being unfair. Um, and then when things do happen, they get out of, they get out of hand. Um, and people hear that the police officer was let off with no consequences. They were found, you know, not guilty of anything. Um, they, they think that people are allowed to just get away with horrible behavior. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to tackle that. Um, but I think that those are the two things that need to be looked at first. Yeah. I've done some research into, um, you know, different countries as far as, their tactics, how come they manage not to kill so many different people? And that is that is a, a very sticky subject, one that I don't think that we'll ever be able to, to conquer and handle here in the United States because we have this thing called the Second Amendment. Right. And, bec and because, because of that, you know, every officer is trained to believe that every single person that they encounter is armed. Right. Um, so how do, we, how do we get around that? And, and I, want the, I want that to be gotten around somehow, uh, right. whether we make another amendment you know, overturning the second amendment or, or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I, of course that would present a whole nother big set of problems. People aren't, aren't going to give up their guns. So <laughs> have you ever spoken with any, go ahead. I look like you were going to say oh, something. No. Have you ever spoken with any law enforcement groups? Have you, what, what have they said about your article? Um, do, do they agree with it or, or, or what? 
Well, it, you know, like you said, it's 93 pages, so it's pretty long. Um, uh, some police departments reached out and said that they were going to institute body cameras after mm -hmm. reading what I'd written because they felt like they really want to build trust with their communities. They want to do a good job. Um, and I think we should have a lot of respect for police officers who are willing to put their own lives on the line to protect other people. Um, I think that that's something that can get lost in a lot of the, the debate that's happening right now because there's such an urgent need to want to reform the problems that we forget to show um, appreciation for the many good police officers that are, that are um, serving others, right? Um, but I think that that was something that a lot of people felt like, oh, this is something we can do to try to institute more accountability for police officers, to show the community that we care. Um, so I actually had you know, several um, police chiefs email me about that specific issue. Um, when it comes to um, like some of the other reforms that we polled about in the survey, um, I've noticed a lot of um, uh, academics and scholars that work on this topic, especially in the past year, have been citing this study over and over and over again. So I think that there's a lot of work being done, proposals being made, about how to try to improve police accountability um, and, and tackle these issues. But again, you know, my report was just, was just basically going through what people think, what are the perceptions that people have and where are those divides? And so it's kind of up to the experts in the field to come up with proposals for how they think they can actually effectuate the change that people want to see. Were any of these surprising to you? I know you, you, you maintained that you have just kind of gathering the data, but was any of it surprising to you? Um, oh, so the survey that we did in 2016, and then we did a survey just this summer about police departments, qualified immunity. Um, we, we, in our survey in June, um, we found that a majority of people basically support ending qualified immunity, which I know is a really touchy subject for police officers. And I think that I understand there are just these different sides of the issue. Um, but I think that what people generally agree with is this idea that if police officers violate people's rights in the process of an encounter, that the police officer should be held accountable for when that happens. Um, and some um, some scholars or experts in this field feel like that's one step for injecting a little bit more accountability uh, when for these police officer civilian interactions. So that was something I really didn't know what I'd find. Um, so we found about 63% support ending qualified immunity. Again, I know that's very controversial. Did they, yeah, did they understand it though, right? Because qualified immunity isn't just for police officers, right? It's for any government official who kind of makes a mistake, essentially. Right. So what we the way we are the way we worded it, because as you know, survey questions wording is very important for how people answer. Um, we said we asked if people would favor. We, we explained what it was, and then said, "Would you favor oppose eliminating qualified immunity so police officers could be sued for misconduct, even if there was no previous little legal case?" with similar facts that rule they could not engage in that conduct. Now, that's a, lot, that's a lot of words, so maybe some people didn't understand that. So we followed up with another question where we tried to just get at the core, the essence of it. Um, and you know, that question was, if a police officer violates a person's rights but is unaware at the time that their actions were illegal, now, maybe they, this is, this is assuming they didn't know. <laughs> maybe they did, right? But this is assuming they didn't know. 
Should the police officer be held accountable for that misconduct? And 79% of Americans said yes. And we got majorities of Republicans, Democrats, and independents, which show that like this is accountability for policing is a nonpartisan issue. Um, when it comes to the kind of the core, the core aspects of policing, Americans agree about what it should be like. Where the disagreements are and where the gaps are is how close are we meeting that potential? Um, and so Democrats are going to be more likely to say we're not where we should be and Republicans are more likely to come to the defense of the police. So for instance, we asked one question where we asked um, if you were to estimate what percentage of police officers do you think frequently use excessive force? So this is getting to the like, is it just a couple of bad apples out there or is there a, a widespread system? systemic issue, right? Um, so of all Americans, they said 25% of police officers they thought would use more force, excessive force, more force than is necessary. Among white Americans, they thought the number was 20% of police officers. Black Americans said 50% of police officers. So that means one in two. Like if you're encountering a police officer and there's two of them that come into your car, one of the two could be expected to use more force than is necessary. Uh, Latino, Latino Americans said 45% and Asian Americans said 30%. Um, but there was a big partisan gap too. Democrats said 40% of police officers use excessive force. Republicans said only 10%. Um, but when you think about this in context, like even if there were only 10%, I think people would still want to rein that in, right? 10% of officers, if that were true, were using more force than is necessary. Well, let's get the force proportional. Let's get it to where it ought to be. Um, and, you know, how can we go about doing that? Um, so I thought those results were very striking to me. And that's just for the, for the question of the use of force. I mean, did you ask anything similar, like how many people are sworn at or... How often are officers, I don't know, stealing or, or whatever? I mean, any of those? No, no, I didn't ask about that. Um, I'm trying well, to don't ask about, about it. I'm just, I'm just going to throw it out to, I don't know. No, <laughs> that, was about, that was just about the force question. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we also found, I want to say one other thing, though, is that we also found that um, a majority of people, 55%, were worried that if we're too critical of police, that they may be reluctant um, to do their jobs effectively and crime could go up. So people kind of see the juxtaposition, right? They want the police to um, act properly um, and to be held accountable when things go wrong. But at the same time, they also don't want, you know, people to just be hating on police all the time because they worry that that could also have problematic effects. Um, so I think striking that right balance um, and kind of, you know, using our reason, you know, measured reason is really important for moving forward. And sometimes emotions can take hold in either way where people just, you know, rush to defend the police regardless of the facts, or they rush to criticize the police regardless of the facts. And what's really key is to, you know, maintain objectivity um, as we think about reforms. Now that's got to be difficult. What you just said right there, right? How do we get people to maintain objectivity, right? Not react emotionally. You don't have any suggestions for that, right? Because we can see tonight on the news some some uh, shooting or something else go on, and you know the city could blow up. You don't, you don't have any suggestions about that. Do you? <laughs> 
Well, sometimes the news media really um, <laughs> doesn't help in this department of reducing, you know, emotionality. Um, it can really eject, inject a lot of it. But I do think what is helpful is, is empathy can be useful. Um, you know, empathy for the police officers that are doing a good job and work very hard to um, do the right thing. And then also empathy for the people who've been on the receiving end of mistreatment from police um, and wanting them to have justice. And so just, I think that is having a balanced approach to empathy and not assuming that it's all good, you know, one side's all good and one side's all bad. Like seeing the nuance is really important um, for maintaining objectivity when it comes to police reform. You mentioned that a number of chiefs had called you about the article. How, um, were they small town chiefs? Well, give, can you give us a rough, rough estimate how many there were? Were they small town, large, uh, uh, medium-sized departments? Do you know? Um, I think they were on the smaller side because I think for like a large department like the LAPD or something like that, that takes a lot to get body cameras. I think they have them. Um, but like it takes more than just a police chief saying, oh, let's do it, right? I think that they have to go through more hoops. Um, so that's what I saw were, were smaller town uh, police chiefs. Mm. Very nice. So do you have any suggestions for what the police department should do? Get body cameras. Uh, you talked about reaching out to the community, building what we would call le legitimacy, right? This idea that when and if something happens, uh, we want to make sure that, that the officer is held accountable. Give us your, I know that you're just a kind of a numbers kind of cruncher. What, 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 what would you say? You're going to leave your office, you're going to drive around and maybe get stopped by the police, maybe not. What would you say could help to repair the relationship between the police and the public? <laughs> well, that's a really hard question. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'll save that for, for the people that study, you know, study the normative side of this. But when it comes to what people think, uh, we asked about several reforms and we found that, for instance, um, a lot of people think that, actually a majority of people think that the police using military equipment is probably going too far, whereas 46% say it's necessary for law enforcement purposes. Now, I completely understand the need for police officers to wear protective gear, especially when they're facing protesters that are throwing bottles at their face and, and like lasers and all that sort of stuff. So they, we need to protect police officers. Uh, but I, I, again, it kind of goes back to the only use as much force as is necessary. Like let's not err on the side of using too much. <laughs> um, kind of go up to that point. Um, and so I think when people see um, military weapons, because um, there is a program where you know unused, certain unused military equipment can, can be funneled into police departments. Um, I think that a lot of people see that, that really damages the perception people have of the police. They think, wow, like they're like an occupying force rather than um, our friend here to protect us. Um, and so I think that's one thing that the public supports and I think sh people should look at that. Um, do we really need to have military weapons um, for the police to protect police and to protect communities? So let's think about that. Um, Another thing is 63% um, say they oppose racial profiling and 65% th think it is commonly used. Um, so we did find evidence that um, higher income African-Americans were stopped more frequently, like the more income they, they received uh, or that they reported, the more frequently they, they said they were stopped by the police. And so that suggests that perhaps there's some racial profiling going on among some, right? Um, and so, you know, 
stop that. We've got to, we've got to find ways to stop that, right? Um, and we also found things like civil asset forfeiture. 84% of Americans oppose, uh, oppose that, um, that practice of civil asset forfeiture. So that's the idea that um, a police department could seize, seize money or property of a person um, that is suspected to have been involved in a crime before that person is convicted. Um, and so most people think if that, kind, if that money is going to be seized, if that property is going to be seized, it would need to happen afterwards. And I think a lot of people would say, well, why does it have to be seized at all? Um, unless it was involved in the crime, right? Um, but most people would say, you've got to at least have a conviction. You know, you're innocent before proven guilty. And I think a lot of people feel like that runs afoul of that principle. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just a couple of things where people could start. Um, de-escalation training, majority of Americans support um, extra funding for de-escalation training, which I think would also include trying to include um, other types of professionals, like right now, a lot of police officers are called to deal with um, a person, like a homeless person that has a mental health problem. Um, and that's a little unfair to kind of have the police deal with that because they don't have the training to know how to, to best deal with that person. And so to have people come onto the scene that can help um, could again, de-escalate it, reduce the likelihood that something violent happens, and again, to help rebuild that relationship of the police with their community, because people feel like they're fair and that they're impartial. Um, and I think that impartiality is so, so important for improving police community relations. Like you said, when people came up to the front desk at the police station, um, they would say, okay, it was, it was legitimate that the police towed my car, but why did they have to cuss at me? Why did they swear at me? You know, so anything that shows disrespect or impartiality, people don't support. But there's a lot of studies that show that people will support even, you know, negative penalties toward themselves um, as long as they felt like the judge applied the rules equally to everyone and that they were just one of, you know, that was what they got as a consequence of their actions. But as soon as people feel like there's any question, like some other guy is going to get off for the same thing um, or that the police are, you know, using more force than is proportional, that's when we get out of balance. And um, that's when people start to distrust the police. And so the only way to kind of right the ship is to tackle those perceptions by improving behavior and improving accountability. Yeah, listen, I, I think that's well said. Um, and th those are certainly, uh, I know that you want to kind of shift it to those who are more, uh, had more expertise, but you gave us really one of the greatest uh, uh, lines of thinking about how we can repair that, that damage, right? It's just go out there and be nice to people, right? <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really not that hard. It really isn't. I, I had a situation, you know, myself being retired, I went to a police, uh, local police, uh, state police barracks, and the way that the guys were talking to me, I mean, they had no idea that I, you know, was a retired captain, but the way that they talked to me was, was ridiculous, you know, and like, this is the way you talk to citizens and people who come in here, um, you know, and it, it's, wow. really, it's really just, really just sad. Um, so I think that, that we could go a long way about the way that we talk to people and you're right, eliminating asset forfeiture, uh, which I didn't even know was a thing being here in Connecticut. I mean, knew 
I knew that if we arrested someone for drug for dealing drugs, we'd seize their house maybe or their car or uh, obviously the, their their proceeds. But you could just be driving down the street. The stories that I read, you could be just driving down the street, have uh, you know a thousand dollars on your way to casino, and they don't, police don't think you ought to have a thousand dollars. It's going to take it, and then <laughs> and then it's up to you to hire a lawyer to try to get it back. Uh, and, yeah. and like you said, the burden of proof is the burden of proof is now on you, not on the state to prove that I was doing anything illegal. And when I was reading stories like this, like, like, this is this is ridiculous. So I think that that, that things like that that we we could do uh, would would certainly go a long way. Certainly go a long way. So, um, I'm going to let you go. I hear your baby kind of going yeah, in the background. Sorry, did you hear <laughs> in the background? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I really, really appreciate it. So you just did a survey. We'll finish off with this. You just did a survey back in the summertime. Um, uh, is that survey released yet? Can I read it? Because I'm kind of a nerd like that. I like to. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, we did release that. I can send it to you. Um, let me see. Yeah, so it's a short poll. The one that you read was, an in, it was a long, in-depth study. Um, we did another one. Um, oops. Uh, just this summer that was more, um, it was short, kind of to the point. Um, it was primarily on um, qualified immunity. Mm. Let me find it. Here we go. I can send it to you like, like this. Oh, okay. I got it. It's in the chat. I got it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, what else are you going to be working on? Do you, do they give you assignments or you just kind of come up with your own stuff to, to write about or? Um, well, it's kind of give and take. Um, I often kind of propose things and we kind of go in that way unless someone else wants to do something. But our next one that we're planning to do is on immigration and identity. Um, and then after that on um, kind of political thought and open discourse. So free speech sort of, but something that's a little bit broader than just that. Uh, not that you mention it. Do you have time? I don't. I don't. I don't want to. Sure. Oh, okay. Um, I, I did read another article that you wrote that I was that I really found very fascinating. It was about um, the more religious you are, then the more empathetic that you are. Which I actually thought was actually the very the very opposite. I thought the more people religious people were, and you t particularly you were talking about Trump voters, the more the more likely they are to attend church. I should say it like that, not just those who say they're Christian, but if you, right. they actually attend church, then they're actually more sympathetic to immigration, to uh, the plight of the poor, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I actually was very surprised at that because I had been hearing for a long time that the evangel evangelical evangelical right. <laughs> was was very intolerant of people so that that article uh was very very uh, uh shocking to me i would say i was very surprised at that can you want to elaborate on, on that oh um yeah well um like you said the, the key issue was not just if you said you're religious but the more frequently you attend religious services um <clears throat> the more open people came became on immigration um, the, the more they cared about racial equality and the, the plight of the poor. Um, and this is really important because I think that after kind of the culture wars over same-sex marriage, a lot of people came to believe that religious people were less likely to be tolerant of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, minorities of some, you know, like sexual minorities in that instance, but, you know, they kind of thought that, that would extend. 
Um, but that is not what we found. Um, and it seems like, um, you know, there's something about um, religious participation, whether it be doctrinal um, or um, the, the security that people find by having a tight-knit community and feeling a sense of purpose and, and who they are and where they come from, that kind of stuff can help. Um, you know, or also it's just like I said, doctrinal, where like every week you're reminded, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that was just very notable because I think it ran counter to what a lot of people had expected. Um, and so the New York Times actually ran an op-ed that I wrote and they, they titled it the, the liberalism of the religious right. <laughs> um, and it surprised a lot of people. Um, but yeah, and, and like what it seems like is that religion can, can actually be a moderating force in American politics and that surprised people, right? They thought it was the polarizing force. And on that one issue, it did seem like it polarized, but on other issues, um, it really kind of bridges the gap. And when you think about it, I don't know if you're religious, but if there's someone that you disagree with politically, but you like sit next to each other in the pews, at church or synagogue or mosque or whatever it is, you have this other connection to them where you start to see them as a person rather than as just an opponent. Um, and so having more of those linkages to each other where we're not just like this group or that group, but um, we, we, we start to kind of, it helps us empathize with each other and see the humanity in one another. So that's what it seems like was happening with, with those results. It surprised a lot of people, but there's a lot more work to do um, about kind of that moderating influence that um, religious attendance could have on political views. Well, like I said, it certainly surprised me. I was very, I was very shocked to read that. So <laughs> I actually read it like two or three times. I'm like, I can't be reading this. Right. But, <laughs> but, but it's good. But, but I think that things like that, you have to really be open-minded to, to accept information, even though it, you know, it doesn't go with your own confirmation bias. Right. You have to be willing to, to, to accept that. So, so yeah. I said, all the people out there keep going to church. Right. So you can, <laughs> so. Uh, I am not religious, but but if, but if it moderates people and gets them to be more accepting of human beings, then I'm all for whatever method yeah. it takes to get there. <laughs> yeah. right. And on that note, I really will let you go. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really, really had a great time. Very informative. Uh, you really, I know that you didn't want to give us a lot of information, but you really did give us some great information <laughs> as to how police departments can can make some can look at this information and really make some some better changes uh, and some choices about you know how they how they discipline people uh, and uh, how they think about, uh, you know, body cameras and the militarization of the police and, and really hope that they would really think about that. Revisit the article, even though it was written 2016, it certainly is, is very important for today, 2020. Um, so once again, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great okay. to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.